oh, screw tape letters. Yeah. <laughs> oh, a lion, witch in a wardrobe. And I'm like, I have no idea what this is. And the movies came out and I was like, I don't know what this is. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, Abolition of Man, Chapter 2. If you didn't have the opportunity to listen to Chapter 1, you can go find that, the episode right before this one where we walked through Abolition of Man, chapter one. And as I already said tonight, we're going to glide our way through or over chapter two, just maybe hit some of the ideas in there. So before we do that, any introductory thoughts, guys? Just want to say something like, what's going on? Welcome, welcome. 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 <laughs> I don't have a whole lot to say. We're excited to read through Abolition, chapter two, and this has been a lot harder than we thought it was going to yeah, be. Yeah, Abolition, I'll say this. I teach the class on Lewis, and when I tell students we're going to read this, I tell them, go get a guide, because he is dense, and there are some helpful guides out there where people who have walked through this understand it. This is one of those books where if you don't try to find a resource, you're going to read it and think it's not worth your time. It is. You just, you might need some help. And so even us, like I looked at a guide last week to confirm my understanding this right, because I thought I understood something, and I, I think I was a little off on it. So I think the guides are very helpful. And I've got that hideous strength right next to me, but even that, it's just it is helpful to hear other people talk about it. So we're growing in this ourselves too. So what's what's a guide? Where did you find a guide? Well, okay, so there's a couple of websites, Lewisania.net, uh, cslewisfoundation.org. There's a guy at Houston Baptist University. I can't think of his name. It has like a seven-page summary. It's really good. He's got thematic stuff in each chapter. What's going on is there's a context Lewis is talking or is writing in and when he's writing this book, and there's issues of the day he's responding to, and we don't always catch that as we read the book. It's kind of similar to when you read the Old Testament and you need to study the history of the time period to understand it. Anyways, guides are helpful, and so yeah. When I get took one. your C.S. Lewis oh, yeah. class, I was lost. <laughs> and so for the listener, I I mean I got saved when I was 16. I had no idea who C.S. Lewis was. Maybe as I got through high school and then came to college, I heard like rumblings of like, oh, screw tape letters. Yeah. <laughs> oh, a lion, witch in a wardrobe. And I'm like, I have no idea what this is. And the movies came out and I was like, I don't know what this is. I think I had read Mere Christianity. And that oh. was it when I started taking the C.S. Lewis class. And when we got to Abolition of Man, I was absolutely <laughs> lost and so there's actually some really helpful YouTube videos. Yes. That like draw out like graphics to yeah. help organize C.S. Lewis thoughts. Doodles. Yeah. yeah. The, the oh, Lewis Doodles. Good. The yeah. Lewis Doodles. And that was that was really great. helpful to me. Yeah. Uh, as like a first run through. You know, I, I, now I think this is the fourth time that I've read through. And it's still like every time you see things you didn't see before. I, I think, I mean, not to put like a shameless plug in here. To me, I think the best guide to understanding this is the space trilogy because it's a narrative and you get to know the character. And then all of a sudden the light bulb goes on. You're like, Oh, that character is yes. the trousered ape. That character is the urban blockhead. Yeah. But you need a guide to tell you that at the beginning. Otherwise, if yeah. you're not really understanding abolition, then you go read the ransom trilogy. Yeah. Then it's just oh. kind of like putting the pieces together. is kind of hard. Can we talk about the name? 
the Ransom Space Trilogy issue. Yeah, go we for didn't. It. We haven't mentioned that yet. No. So, listener, I'm a little bit ashamed, but not because. And I'll explain. So, this is often called the Space Trilogy. It's even packaged that way on a lot of books. The Space Trilogy. Lewis would not have called it that. He would have called it the Ransom Trilogy. Uh, there's a guy named Doug Wilson. If you look up Doug Wilson Ransom Trilogy on YouTube, he'll have a little clip where he explains why Lewis never would have used that word. Lewis didn't like the idea of space being this thing that's out there. And also, if you'll notice, the third one doesn't even take place in space. It's on Earth, and it's all about the main character named Ransom. So you'll hear us say Ransom Trilogy, and you'll hear us say Space Trilogy. Now, if you really meet someone who's a Lewis aficionado and you say Space Trilogy, they might turn their nose up at you. And I understand that. Would that be something we might deem Philistine behavior? Well, <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to ask my my authority in Georgia <laughs> on that one. But I will say this. I often say Space Trilogy knowing it's the Ransom Trilogy because yes. other people, that's how they speak. And maybe that's bad. I don't know. Yeah. But, so just to clarify, and then we'll move on because we need to move on. But so do we? I think you could read. <laughs> I think you could read Out of the Silent Planet, which is the first in the... Ransom Trilogy. Or Space Trilogy. But yes, the Ransom Trilogy. You could read that, and you could get into some of the conversations that are happening. And I think without understanding anything about Abolition of Man, you could make some very quick judgments about these characters and the faults that they have. And then once you read Abolition, you'd be like, oh. Oh, oh Lewis is talking about that. That's that thing that that guy did. I didn't have the benefit of that because I think I'd gone through Abolition of Man twice before I even touched Space Trilogy. But then, and then I went through the Space Trilogy, had no clue, and then I'm like, you know, maybe I need to think a little bit more while I read. And, <laughs> but then now the second time through, I don't think you can miss it. And I think, I think you have to read it for a story's sake first. But I think your buddy George yeah. kind of told us, like, yes. hey, just read it for its own sake. Think about the characters and what's happening and when you do that, I think the imagination is an in and of itself to teach you what Lewis is trying to get at, if that makes sense. I know we're going a little bit far afield from our outline, but even the stuff you were saying about Out of the Silent Planet and the like Harasa and the, mm. the things that are the Hanau, the living things. Now, yeah. And yet then there are these other characters who are humans and they're behaving less so. So you'll you, see those things. Let me ask you this, uh, Stearns and, and Little. Do you think it's a coincidence that Hanau rhymes with Tau? As if Ooh. all of these different creatures have this objective value system, even if they're not human. Like, they all have the Tau because they're Hanau. Huh. It's interesting. I have no I idea. Because Hanau is, for the listener, Hanau is like the idea that it's a living being that has reason. And in fact, the animals on Earth have lost that. And he kind of explains that in one of them. Oh, that's interesting. And there's I these don't know. species on... Like uh, Paralandra. Uh, well, both of them. Well, yeah. Malacandra, there's uh, three species, and they're all Hanau. Yeah. And then the two humans that are there, the, the, the blockhead and the ape, have no perception that these other creatures are more human than them. So just to wet your whistle a bit. So let's get into Abolition Chapter 2. Uh, let's, let's get a running start and maybe get a quick recap of like the peaks, the high points in chapter one. So in chapter one, we had the green book. Uh, this is a grammar book. And Lewis is explaining that the green book is basically neutering people. It is making them less manly, less human, um, because it, it fails to 
help them properly order sentiments because it denies all sentiment, it denies all emotion, and thus it denies all absolute truth. The portion of chapter one that I really like is his discussion on emotions. Uh, He explains how the man, to be a real man, and remember the title of the book is Abolition of Man. So to be a man, to be a person, what you need to do is you need to have properly ordered loves or properly ordered affections, which are intellectual, but they are not solely intellectual. They are within the chest and within the the magnanimity of man. So you have the trousered ape, which is a person that is ruled by their base desires, by their stomach. And then you have the urban blockhead that presumably is ruled by reason. And he says that to be a real man, you need to be neither. You need to be uh, a person with a chest. So that's just kind of a quick synopsis of chapter one. I hope that's helpful now moving into chapter two. Or do you guys have anything you want to add on chapter one there? Uh, I think that was pretty good. Yeah. We were we were just pointing and deliberating in silence so as to not get picked up on the microphone about who we think these characters are in Out of the Silent Planet. You guys are horrendous. <laughs> we, were, we were like mouthing like, this guy. And then, no, 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 not that guy. You know, that but, guy. But I think part of it is because <laughs> as he's writing, I think maybe some of these people have multiple elements. Is that, like, oh, yeah. I might be thinking of one, think, you're thinking of another. I think the urban blockhead and the trousered ape are like, like the ice cream cone that's got the chocolate and the vanilla, like the twist. Oh, that's you know, good. They're distinct, like but that. they're the same. Like, yeah. They're so not, really, they're not completely different <clears throat> entities. So really, you weren't listening to a thing that I said. I heard every. Word I was you following said. you through your points. Okay, let's let's In move fact, on. That's what gave us this good conversation. So beautiful. We're, what we're gonna do is we're going to move chronologically through chapter two and just kind of hit some highlights that we deemed important. Uh, we're not going to touch on everything. There's actually something that you can do that's going to help you follow along or going to help you grasp things. Uh, Stearns let us in on this little trick. So Stearns, this is this is for you yeah. to divulge this professional tip. Oh my word. It's not that, it's it, but it is helpful. So, um, well, first of all, it, you're, we're trying to talk about this book and we all have a different edition. So like electronic one, paper one, and then... D- Tim has a big compendium volume that has like all of Lewis's uh, prose writings. And so we're all trying to figure out what, what page we're on. So we just numbered the paragraphs. Super helpful. So if you go through your paragraphs, we're going to, we're going to talk about them that way. We're going to say paragraph one, two, three, all the way up to the end. And so for me, if you're going to take notes on this book, that's another good way to organize your notes. So I've got, I've got three pages of notes and I I only didn't take notes on at least seven of the chapters. And that was really helpful because I'm going back through this reading. it. So, listener, if you're going to really dive into this number of the paragraphs, that's been really helpful for us. And we'll try to talk that way, too, so you know where we're at in the book. Yeah. Uh, just to, to be clear, we were not doing that. Andy did it. And then Tim and I were like instantly, oh, yeah, that's a really smart idea. And that I, I did that. I numbered the paragraphs and went back through thinking by paragraph. And it was, I kind of want to like, I think I'm going to add that to like when I go through a book now, maybe not by paragraph, but just like, I mean, we do this with scripture, you know, pericope, but like grab a (laughs) unit and just like, oh, okay, what's that unit and what's that unit? I don't know why I never thought to like exegetically approach abolition of man, but uh, (laughs) that was really helpful. (laughs) Well, and and I think for, for a really complex book like this, what I was trying to do is all I was aiming at was to say, what's the main topic of chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, 
just to try to get my mind to follow where he's going because it's it's a thick book. It is not the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. It is not like super easy. Here it is. Taste the fruit. It's you have to think and think and think. And you might really struggle through it and you might not have something very definitive at the end. But there are things that are worth the study in chapter two and chapter three. So let's dive into that. I'm looking at my notes here. Andy, you have a point from paragraph three. Yes. So in in three, uh, Lewis makes this comment about Gaius and Titius. Oh, now, what are their names? Okay, yes, yeah, so we talked about that. So last time I called it, I said Gaius and Titius. And uh, I went and I downloaded the audiobook, and the audio reader who is the son of Lewis's wife, so he married a, a woman, Joy Davidson, who had children, uh, Gresham, his son, her son, that's who narrates the book. And he does not call them Gaius and Titius. He calls them uh, Gaius or Gaius and Titius. So I got all nervous. So I asked on a C.S. Lewis message board, it was like a bunch of Lewis aficionados. How do you pronounce it? And it came up in multiple ways. And finally, this one lady who said, my husband is classically trained. He knows Latin. And honestly, because of like Britain and America, because of the differences, you could really say it either way. So we'll probably go back and forth between Gaius and Titius and Gaius and Titius. And that's the only two pronunciations we'll use. But all that to say, he, um, he comments on them in the third paragraph. And he says... That he, so he's 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 taking apart their he's kind of talking about what they're saying. He's explaining about how they're trying to give them give a grammar lesson, but then they're creating this new morality in their English book, and it's a morality that's really baseless, which is what he's about to get into. But when he talks about him, he says uh, in paragraph three, he says in, in actual fact, Gaius and Titius will be found to hold with complete uncritical dogmatism. Now, what's ironic about that is to be uncritical is to not critique or not analyze something. But what have they been doing? They're analyzing traditional morality like through and through, but of their own position, they're not doing that. So he says all they're doing is they're holding without any critique the whole system of values which happens to be in vogue among moderately educated young men of the professional classes during the period between the two wars. Their skepticism about values is on the surface. It is for use on other people's values. About the values current in their own set, they are not nearly skeptical enough. There's two things that make me think about. When it comes to culture today, the cultural elite who are critiquing outmoded tradition, if you pay attention, often the arguments they use against traditional positions could be turned around and used on their own position. And it seems like they're not observant of that sometimes. In fact, I even do that too. I will, I will judge another person uh, for doing something that I think is wrong. And if I really pause for a moment, I would be inconsistent because I'm doing the same thing. And Lewis is just pointing out that whatever Gaius and Tidy is trying to argue, if you take the same reasons and the same arguments and go back on their position, it falls apart to it. And so what's intriguing is that if you... Look at C.S. Lewis's spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Choi. When he, after the war, he's an out-and-out atheist. He's back at Oxford, and he says he has this new look. And the new look is, he says, uh, there's no more pessimism. He's going to have optimism about the future. No more self-pity. No more flirtation with any idea of the supernatural. No romantic delusions. 
And he's basically turned all the way away from morality and he's embracing this atheism. And it's, I don't know if I'm right. When he says this new look, he's saying, this is what everyone my age was taking. To, this is what we were all thinking. And it's just, it's interesting. Seems like that might be part of what he's saying there. I, did, I was laughing because when you said surprised by joy, I thought you said surprised by Choi. And uh, <laughs> I thought that was really funny. We have some friends that are the Choi's. So if you're listening, hey. <laughs> well, sometimes you are Iowa, surprised by Minnesota Choi. Friends, surprised by Choi. And maybe the point about that one, just to lay it out, is that Lewis is pointing out that these guys are judging moral positions, but they're not taking that same standard on their own position. And that's maybe something as a reader you should pay attention to when cultural elites are judging Christianity for reasons. Before you say, oh man, Christianity's wrong, ask if those same reasons could be used on the cultural elite's positions as well. And often they can. You read the quote that I, they like to take these uh, skeptic ideas and apply them to all of the worldviews they don't like, but then they don't apply it to their own worldview. I, I really like that quote. We'll move just a couple paragraphs over from that one to paragraph seven, where he gets into this idea of instinct. And Tim wants to comment on this one. I thought this was a major part of chapter two. Um, what is the foundational belief then that, that, uh, that they can build upon? Is it reason? So he talks about reason in chapter one and at the beginning of chapter two. And then he uh, looks at instinct. He looks at three different instincts. The first one is self-preservation. We all seem to have this instinct of self-preservation. Um, there's also the preservation of society. That is his second instinct. And then his third instinct is sexual morality. So Lewis goes on and he defines, uh, defines instinct um, and he explains that if it's an instinct, then it's something that we instinctually do, like we have to do it. It's an instinct. If it's not something that we have to do, if we really have a choice in whether or not we want to do it or can do it or should do it, then it's not really an instinct. And so he looks at these three instincts and he explains how these three instincts are really even at war within each other. Sometimes there might be an instinct to preserve your own life, but there's this other instinct to preserve society. So if the instincts are warring with each other, then there's, there's no real instinct there. So if there's not an instinct, then what are these things? What are these things for self-preservation? What are these things, what is it that motivates one, this instinct is presumably for uh, the preservation of society? There's something bigger that's driving it, which is hilarious because that's the Tao. Yeah, and he makes a comment. I, I don't know if it's in that same paragraph, but he's commenting on instinct. And he's like, so if it's actually an impulse that you naturally have, then why do we have to write a book telling people to do it? Like if they're just going to do it anyway, why did Gaius and Titius even write this? <laughs> they didn't need to if it's instinct. So he's, he's very subtly kind of jabbing this idea of instinct. Like, you know, that doesn't really work. Well, and even in the next, in the next chapter, he's, or in the next paragraph, he says, and by the way, what's an instinct? It's just a word we have for what we, what, when something's going to happen, and we don't know why it's happening. That's all it is. It's, and this is the, the reasoned people who are all about empiricism and knowing for sure why they're doing you something. You have to and, prove it. Yeah, yeah. He's, and, he, 
Yeah. Oh, it's just the way it is. It's just the way people do things. What is instinct? Simply what we call it when we don't understand why something happens. The unreflective or spontaneous impulse widely felt by a members of a given species. And yeah, and they're ascribing authority to that. And I, I couldn't, I didn't quite catch Tim if you'd mentioned this, but just a quick comment and then we'll, we'll glide on. When you talk about instincts, how do you determine one instinct is more valuable than another if value doesn't exist? And he points that out too. Like if there's no such thing as objective goodness or truth, okay, I have this instinct, I have this other instinct. Without value, how do I determine which impulse I should act upon? So it's, it, it breaks down on a logical level in a, in a multitude of ways. So from there, we're going to jump over to paragraph 11, where he kind of brings this to a T. Like, you put your reason and your instinct and you mix it around with no value. How do you get someone to do something? And you you really, you can't. So Stearns, you're going to comment on this one, right? Yeah. So he, he says, um, he says, the idea is that without appealing to any court higher than the instincts themselves, we can yet find grounds for preferring one instinct over and above its fellows. He says that idea dies very hard. And that's what we were just talking about is there's, it's very hard to say which instinct is going to be more, uh, what do you want to say? Instinctually accurate. Mm-hmm. Ru- you can't, I'm trying not to say right. I'm trying not to say authority. But he says this. He, he goes on to point out how they're, they're in this old dilemma where you you're making observations, you're seeing this, and then you're seeing what is, and now you're trying to say that means we ought to do this. He says either uh, the premises are already concealed, and it's concealing an imperative, or the conclusion remains merely in the indicative. So for the listener, imperative and indicative, one is a command, one is a statement of fact. And so if you learn Greek, there are certain verbs that you use to just say, hey, this is what's true, like I'm going to the store, or I went to the synagogue, or whatever, and then there's another or, kind of, go ahead. I love the Thinklings podcast, that would be yeah. an indicative statement. Be an indicative statement, you yeah. got it. Okay. So then there's other st- verbs that you would use to make a command where you are supposed to follow it, like, like you should love oh, the Thinklings podcast. That is such a beautiful example. Or just to say, love the Thinklings podcast. Yeah, like, like command. Ooh, that's love good. that. Well, I should put that in my Greek class. That would be a really good example. Thank you, Charlie. I think it's a great example. Yeah. And so the the idea here is that in one sense, you state what you see. In the other one, you're commanding obedience to some principle. Here's the problem. It goes all the way back to David Hume. If I scientifically look at the the world and I take information down, I'm very empirical, and I can say, look, this is what a species does. They, you know, do this or that, or this is how the natural world operates. You can never go from this is what happens to you ought to do this. There's no way to go from the is statements to the ought statements purely on reason alone. That's what David Hume was trying to figure out. Um, recently, Sam Harris has written, Sam Harris is a notable new atheist, and he's written a book called The Moral Landscape. In the moral landscape, uh, he tries to overcome this problem. He, he tries to say, look, I don't need religion to have a moral, I don't need religion to have a Tao of some sort. I can have my own moral system. And then when he tries to explain how he builds the foundation for that, he says, I'm going to use science. And so he talks about goodness being scientifically, like it's like health, it's flourishing of humans. 
Uh, but the whole book falls apart because flourishing and surviving and what is good becomes a subjective statement. And uh, so he has a debate with a, a Christian apologist, and in the back of his book he, has, book, he has this footnote about a, you know, maybe an axe murderer or something would feel like he's flourishing, and so then you'd have to call that good. And so it, the is-ought problem is is a, a big problem. And, and Lewis is just pointing it out here. Yeah, and that kind of brings us, we're, we're going to jump over some material. We were just in paragraph 11, and we're going to jump to paragraph 21. And it really kind of brings it into a funnel where if you've gotten rid of things such as what Andy was just talking about, like this is what good is. If you no longer have good, like what what do you do? Like how do you operate? <laughs> like there, there is no way to operate rationally or logically. And so you have systems that, really a system, a worldview that's built on these principles. And once you get rid of them, like you said, it falls apart. And then you get into this idea, well, how do you prove that these things exist? How do you prove that this is the right way? And in paragraph 21, he makes a, a nice little illustration about why you can't do this. And it gets into an apologetic idea of presuppositional beliefs. It's like you can't take a foundational belief and ask it to prove itself. Because it's a first principle, because it's the foundation, you can't have it prove itself. You can't hold, and the, the, the line that he says is, you must not hold a pistol to the head of the Tao. So here's this idea, objective value. And imagine that it is a person. Like this is a person of objective value, which in a theological sense, is maybe not super abstract, but just imagine that for a moment, that here's this person who is objective value. He is the first thing, he is from which all other principles of morality flow. And you hold a gun to his head and you say, if you can't prove to me that you're the first thing, I'm going to kill you and I'm never going to believe in you again. Guess what? Because it's a foundational belief, because it's presuppositional, it cannot prove itself. And the moment you question the objective value to do that, you will be left disappointed. You cannot prove the foundation. And that's, I think that's really important and uh, how it relates to how we view truth because we have to either believe or not. Yeah, there's really no way. So this is actually relates to a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. Part of what he, he's a Christian philosopher. We've actually mentioned him a while back. He, broadly Christian. But part of what he's explained is that there are beliefs in rational thinking. So you're not irrational to believe these that are not the kind of beliefs that can be proven like some sort of a scientific belief or uh, some sort of an evidential belief. And God is, in his opinion, one of those kinds of beliefs. And he shows it, I think, pretty effectively. So maybe one more quick thing to end on in paragraph 23. So this whole time he's been talking about the Tao and actually a lot of the stuff we skipped over, he talks about, can you adjust the Tao? Can you develop the Tao? It's kind of intriguing. Uh, in a, it, it kind of sounds like he's saying you can change morality according to culture. And I, I'm not sure that's what he's saying. Um, but the whole time we've, you're asking the question is what is the Tao? What is the Tao? And in paragraph 23, he comes right out and says it. Uh, he says, um, why must our conquest, he's talking about the conquest of nature because these innovators think we're going to go beyond our, na our natural selves. We're going we're to overcome nature. We're going to put it in subjection. We're going to rule over it. 
And he says, why must our conquest of nature stop short in stupid reverence before its final toughest bit of nature, which has hitherto been called the conscience of man? And here he's talking about the Tao, and he calls it, he equates it with the conscience. And so I think part of what he's been trying to do this whole time is argue that this thing we all have called the conscience isn't irrational, it's not unreasonable, and it's not something we should abandon. Now, he's trying to do that without talking too much about the Bible, but I think that's related to his idea of the Tao as the conscience. Yeah, and he, he's going to mention that in chapter 3. He, he calls it the conscience again in chapter 3, so it's definitely what he's talking about. So Tim is going to wrap us up here in Isaiah 40. And so, Tim, what does Isaiah 40 have to do with Abolition of Man chapter 2? It's connected to that idea of foundational beliefs, like what um, Charlie was talking about. You can't put a gun to the head of the towel. In Isaiah 40, verse 27, uh, well, just quickly, Isaiah 41 through 26 is really this exaltation of God, particularly verses 12 through 27, 12 through 26. And then Israel kind of responds and they say, what do you, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God. So they're seeing this injustice in the world and they are like, God, I thought you were all powerful. God, I thought you were all-knowing. And so what do they say? My way is hidden from the Lord. They're calling into question God's all-powerfulness, his all-knowingness. And then in the second claim, they say, my just claim is passed over by my God. So there they're calling into question God's justice or God's goodness. This is, um, uh, God is often... um, especially amongst atheists, you know, like, God, how, if you're really all good, and if you're really all powerful, then why don't you fix the wicked things in the world? Well, how does Isaiah respond to that? He doesn't um, argue for the existence of God. In fact, he argues toward their conscience. Isaiah forty twenty eight states, have you not known? Have you not heard? He uses rhetorical questions and gets them to think because it's within them. It's like, this is a foundational belief and everybody knows it. And what is it? What is it that you know? What is it that you hear? The everlasting God, the Lord. What's the attribute of God that he highlights? His eternality. And then in the next line, the creator of the ends of the earth, his... um, Uh, his omnipotence. Now, when you think through the eternality of God, you have to understand that God exists outside of time. So, of course, he knows everything because he is living outside of time. So, all time is in existence to God at the same time. Okay, we're getting into a little theology there, but you can study that out. The second point is the omnipotence. So, God knows what situation is going on in your life. God knows it and he has the power. He could do something about it. Then what does he say? In the next line, he states, neither does he faint nor is he weary. God doesn't get tired like people. And that begins a new theme, which Isaiah is going to further encourage us with. In fact, this passage is very encouraging. And then the last line of Isaiah 40, 28, he states, God's understanding is unsearchable. You can't figure out God. You'll never understand him. You can't figure out his plan. And so he doesn't um, say, ah, you know what? You're going through a tough time. I'll get you out of that. No, what does he say? He says, I've got you in that tough time. 
and you don't know why. And then he's going to develop that and say, you're going to have to trust me. So then what is, uh, what is he? But he's not done here. What is the next line? What does he say? He gives power to the weak in verse 29. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. And this is a beautiful statement. He says, you know what, Israel? You're going through a tough time. There's injustice. I hear your claim. I know what's going on, but I'm not going to deliver you from it. Instead, I'm going to empower you to get through it. It's a great truth, just that as the trials and the problems come into our lives, God is the one that strengthens us to go through those issues. In Isaiah 40 and verse 30, he continues and he says that the young men, the strong ones, they faint, they get weary, and they fail. And then Isaiah 40, 31 is a pretty well-known verse. The ones who wait on the Lord. And this idea of waiting has this idea of hoping. As you wait on the Lord, you're hoping in Him. You're trusting in Him. What do they do? They renew their strength. That faith, that hope, that waiting on the Lord, that's the strength uh, I'm sorry, that's the source of the strength. And then the Lord empowers you and strengthens you and he gives you that strength and he creates the, the, um, the metaphor like we, with wings like eagles. And then you run and you're not weary. You walk and you're not faint and you don't faint. The walking is the same word used back in Isaiah 40, 27 when, when they complain about God doesn't see their way. God says, I see your way and I'm going to empower you to get through it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.